Greetings, fellow Earthlings. Dave Smith with another episode of And Another Thing with Dave. So in this episode, uh, I would like to talk about the fact that we can't trust our government. And this is not conspiracy theory jargon. Let me go ahead and play Mike Pompeo, Secretary of Defense, speaking at Texas A&M. I, I, I was the CIA director. We lied, we cheated, we steal, stole. It's like, we, we, had, we, had entire, we had entire training courses. Uh, it, uh... So, there he is. You can't trust somebody who laughs about being a specialist in deception and a complete liar. So, <clears throat> with that in mind, I want to read an article that's very relevant in today's world that we're living in. This is from The Independent, written by Tim Wyatt, Tuesday, August 6th, 2019. Research into deadly viruses and biological weapons at U.S. Army Lab shut down over fears they could escape. The article continues, Fort Detrick researchers banned from working with anthrax, Ebola, and smallpox until, until procedures improved. Okay. <clears throat> America's main biological warfare lab has been ordered to stop all research into the deadliest viruses and pathogens for fears, over fears, contaminated waste could leak out of the facility. Fort Detrick in Maryland has, has been the epicenter of the U.S. Army's bioweapons research since the beginning of the Cold War, but last month the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention the governor's public health body stripped the base of its license to handle highly restricted select agents, which include Ebola, smallpox, and anthrax. Okay, the article continues here. The unusual move follows an inspection by the CDC at Fort Detrick, which found several problems with new procedures used to decontaminate wastewater. For years, the facility used a stream sterilization plant to treat wastewater. But after a storm flooded and ruined that machinery last year, Fort Detrick switched to a new chemical-based decontamination system. But the CDC inspectors found new procedures were not sufficient, both mechanical failures causing leaks, researchers uh, failing to properly follow the rules, as a result, the organization sent a cease and desist order to the Fort Detrick, forcing it to su uh, suspend all research on select agents. Although you, the United States abandoned its biological weapons program in 1969, apparently, but apparently we didn't, Fort Detrick has continued defensive research, <laughs> defensive research, nice, into deadly pathogens on the list of select agents. These include the Ebola virus, the organism known that caused the plague, oh my god, the great plague, and the highly toxic poison ricin, 
The Army's Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, based at Fort Detrick, says its primary mission today is to protect the warfighter from biological threat, but its scientists also investigate outbreaks of disease among civilians and other threats to public health. Huh, interesting. In recent years, it has been involved in testing possible vaccines for Ebola after several epidemics of the deadly virus in Africa. A spokeswoman for the lab, Carrie Vanderlinden, said despite the CDC's suspension order, there had not been any threat to public health or any leaks of hazardous materials outside the base. How does she know? These are microscopic things. Oh my God. The shutdown of Fort Detrick is likely to last several months, she also told the New York Times. This is not the first time the lab has been temporarily shut down due to failures in handling the dangerous pathogens inside. Ooh. In 2009, research at Fort Detrick was suspended because it was discovered it was storing pathogens which were not listed on its inventory. Wow. So they had stuff there that nobody knew about. The regulations on keeping close track of hazardous biological material were tightened after the 2001 anthrax attacks, which saw five people die after spores were posted to several media newsrooms and Democratic senators. And I would just like to point out <clears throat> that that anthrax was found to come from that same lab in Fort Detrick, Maryland. So, you know, what else they were working with at that lab in Fort Detrick was uh, multiple strains of the coronavirus and multiple strains of the swine flu virus. So, hmm. They have lax, lax uh, pathogen security. They're working with corona. Now all of a sudden the U.S. is the epicenter worldwide for corona. These could be coincidences. They, they definitely could be coincidences. But here, let's continue on to this article. This unlocks that uh, the anthrax sent out after 9-11 was made in that same lab at Fort Detrick, Maryland. Hmm. Wow. Okay, so this article is from the Scientific American, and this is by Larry Greenemeyer on September 19th, 2008. Seven years later, electrons unlock post-9-11 anthrax mail mystery. A key part of the FBI's investigation was including whether the germ that killed five people in late 2001 was weaponized. Although they found the answer, scientists had to keep mum until the agency completed its inquiry. This is a great article. When materials, sciences, when materials scientist Joseph Michael and his team at Sandia National Laboratories in Albuquerque, New Mexico, trained their high-powered electron microscope on anthrax spores sampled I'm sorry, on anthrax spore samples the FBI had sent them in February 2002, 
they made two crucial discoveries. The first confirmed previous findings that the Bacillus anthracis spores mailed to the U.S. Senate offices and various media outlets shortly after September 11th terrorist attacks contained silicone, a substance used to turn anthrax-causing spores into a biological weapon. But it was Sandia's next discovery that marked a critical turning point in the Fed's probe of the mysterious mailings, which killed five people, injured 17, and prompted thousands more who were potentially exposed to the deadless spores to take potent antibiotics, in particular cybrofloaxin known to irritate the gastrointestinal tract and cause joint swelling. Using highly sensitive transmission electron microscopy and scanning transmission electron microscopy, the researchers came to a startling realization. The silicone had grown organically inside the bacillus anthracis samples. Nothing had been added to weaponize the spores. The silicone was not on the outside of the spores, says Michael, who headed up Sandia's investigation, but rather incorporated on the inside. Well, I say that doesn't mean that it's not weaponized. Maybe they found out a way to get the spores to eat the silicone. You know, how do I know? It was this key information that helped the FBI to rule out likelihood that a terrorist organization was behind the anthrax mailings and prompted the agency to turn its attention to U.S. governmental labs as the possible source of the anthrax. This move eventually led the agency to conclude that Bruce Ivins, a scientist at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, a federal biodefense research laboratory at Fort Detrick, Maryland, who initially assisted in the investigation, was the culprit. Ivans, 62, two months ago committed suicide as prosecutors prepared to charge him in connection with the mailings. Huh. Isn't that a freaking coincidence? What a coinkadink! So the guy was suicided. <laughs> so, isn't that perfect, right? It's almost like the Kennedy assassination. Make up some story, pin it on one guy, and then kill him. Right? Oh, nothing to investigate now. Guess we're good. Wow. So they kill the guy, then they blame mailing out the anthrax on him. Huh, so was this some, like, did he leave, a, like, a manifesto? Like, what was the guy's M.O.? Really. Really. Unbelievable. So, you know, and if you, you know, and if you still think maybe this was just <clears throat> some crazy nutbag, right? Like, oh, my government wouldn't do that to me. I don't know. I think I, I guess there's still people out there that think that, even though in this day and age, there have been so many plots outed through the Freedom of, of uh, Information Act, like MK Ultra, where the CIA was was you know working on mind control. I've got an article about that. But, uh, yeah, well, let's go ahead and pull that article up. Where the hell did it go?
right. <clears throat> so this is on NPR's website, author interviews. The Secret Quest for Mind Control, Torture, LSD, and a Poisoner in Chief. September 9th, 2019, heard, heard on Fresh Air with t uh, Terry Gross. This was September 9th, 2019 at 2.50 p.m. Eastern Time on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And it's a 37-minute... Um, interview, but I'm just going to go ahead and give you some of this here, and then I'll post a link to it, too. So, um, during the early period of the Cold War, the CIA became convinced that communists had discovered a, a drug or technique that would allow them to control human minds. In response, the CIA began its own secret program called MKUltra to search for mind control drug that would be that could be weaponized against enemies mk ultra which operated from the 1950s until the early 1960s was created and run by a chemist named sidney gottlieb journalist stephen kinzer who spent several years investigating the program calls the operation the most sustained search in history for techniques of mind control some of Gottlieb's experiments were covertly funded at universities and research centers, Kinzer says, while others were conducted in American prisons and in detention centers in Japan, Germany, and the Philippines. Many of his unwitting subjects endured, psych endured psychological torture ranging from electroshock to high doses of LSD, according to Kinzer's research. Gottlieb wanted to create a way to seize control of people's minds, and he realized it was a two-part process, Kinzer says. First, you had to blast away the existing mind. Oh my God. Second, you had to find a way to insert a new mind into that resulting void. We didn't get too far on number two, but we did a lot of work on number one. Destroying people's minds. Kinzer notes that the top-secret nature of Gottlieb's work makes it impossible to measure the human cost of the experiments. We don't know how many people died, but the number that did and many lives were permanently destroyed. But many did, sorry, and... I'm sorry, let me repeat that. We don't know how many people died, but a number did and many lives were permanently destroyed, he says. Ultimately, Gottlieb concluded that the mind control was not possible. After MKUltra shut down, he went on to lead a CIA program that created prisons and high-tech gadgets for spy use. Wow. So, didn't do time at all. Nope. Um, so, this is all based on a book by this guy, Stephen Kinzer, Poisoner-in-Chief. Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA search for mind control. So let's go ahead and listen to a little bit of this. Uh, this is with Terry Gross on NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor State Farm. Ow. With the State Farm mobile app, your agent's knowledge and services are at your fingertips. Pay your bill, file and track claims, and more. When you need your agent online, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. 
You may have heard stories about the CIA's secret experiments with LSD, through which 60s counterculture luminaries like Ken Kesey and Allen Ginsberg were first introduced to the drug. There's a lot more to the CIA's experiments with LSD, and some of it is pretty horrifying. My guest, journalist Stephen Kinzer, has spent several years investigating the CIA's mind control program, which was known as MKUltra. LSD was just one of the mind-altering drugs that were tested in the program to see if and how they could be weaponized to control human behavior. Many of the unwitting subjects of these experiments are subjected to what amounts to psychological torture. The MKUltra program was created by Sidney Gottlieb in 1953. He ran it until it was shut down in the early 60s. Gottlieb was also the CIA's chief chemist, creating poisons and innovative ways of surreptitiously administering them. He also became head of the CIA program that creates high-tech gadgets for spies to use. Stephen Kinzer's new book is called Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control. One of Kinzer's previous books was about the Dulles brothers, Alan and John Foster Dulles. Alan Dulles was the CIA director during most of the years MKUltra was in operation. Stephen Kinzer, welcome back to Fresh Air. Let's start with, what was the mission of MKUltra? During the early period of the Cold War in the late 40s and early 1950s, the CIA became paralyzed with a fear that communists had perfected some kind of a drug or a potion or a technique that would allow them to control human minds. This was actually a greatly exaggerated fear, but it played on something cultural that uh, affected everybody that grew up in the early 20th century. We were fed a lot of books and movies about the idea of mind control, that you could hypnotize someone or give someone a drug that would make them do something that otherwise they would never do. Uh, and seized by this myth, the CIA not only believed that communists had approached or reached this holy grail, but that the CIA should also find out a way to do it. So MKUltra was a project lasting up to 10 years in which the CIA sought to find ways to control the human mind. They wanted to be able to have a truth serum that would make uh, prisoners say everything they knew, also an amnesiac that would make people forget what they had done, and most important, a technique or a drug that would allow the CIA to direct agents to carry out acts like sabotage or assassination and then forget who had ordered them to do it or even that they had carried out the actions at all. So MKUltra... So they're talking So they're talking about the Manchurian candidate right there, right? Like, uh, what is that? Sirhan Sirhan. Um... The guy that killed Bobby Kennedy, he says he doesn't remember a thing, and he thinks he was a victim of mind control. So who knows? Who knows? Fascinating stuff, right? The most sustained search in history for techniques of mind control. So LSD was created in 1943 by Dr. Albert Hoffman at the Sandoz Laboratories in Basel, Switzerland. How did the CIA find out about LSD? As part of the search for drugs that would allow people to control the human mind, 
CIA scientists became aware of the existence of LSD, and this became an obsession for the early directors of MKUltra. Actually, the MKUltra director, Sidney Gottlieb, can now be seen as the man who brought LSD to America. He was the unwitting godfather of the entire LSD counterculture. In the early 1950s, he arranged for the CIA to pay $240,000 to buy the world's entire supply of LSD. He brought this to the United States, and he began spreading it around to hospitals, clinics, prisons, and other institutions, asking them through bogus foundations to carry out research projects and find out what LSD was, how... Wow! <laughs> so here this guy, this hardcore right-winger, hell-bent on mind control, inadvertently brings the world supply? Wow, I never knew this part. Brings the world's supply of LSD. We're talking pure pharmaceutical LSD. It was still legal. They didn't even know what it was. So they had no chance to outlaw it yet. They didn't even know what it was. Um, nobody had ever, see, ever seen anything like it. Except for maybe some shaman somewhere. <laughs> but, uh, man, so he, bring, he unleashes the world supply of LSD. Little does he know, as opposed to, like, creating some robot who will do whatever you want, you're opening up people's minds and freeing their minds to the point where they'll never do what you tell them again. <laughs> Whoops, backfire. <laughs> that is hilarious. Oh my god. Acted to it and how it might be able to be used as a tool for mind control. Now the people who volunteered for these experiments and began taking LSD uh, in many cases found it very pleasurable. They told their friends about it. Who were those people? Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest got his LSD in an experiment sponsored by the CIA, by MKUltra, by Sidney Gottlieb. Uh, so did Robert Hunter, the lyricist for The Grateful Dead, uh, which went on to become a great purveyor of LSD culture. Allen Ginsberg, the poet who uh, preached the value of the great personal adventure of using LSD, got his first LSD from Sidney Gottlieb, although, of course, he never knew that name. So. CIA brought LSD to America unwittingly. And actually, it's a, it's a tremendous irony that the drug that the CIA hoped would be its key to controlling humanity actually wound up fueling a generational rebellion that was dedicated to destroying everything that the CIA held dear and defended. Even Timothy... Boom. That's what I was just commenting on, right? I don't know, you know, once you've ever taken psychedelics like that, of that type, you see the interconnectivity of all things, of all living things, the miracle of life, the, the, the miracle that we're clinging onto this rock, hurling through space at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour, but somehow we have this protective little atmosphere that clings to the to this rock with us and somehow the water doesn't just fly up and out of here because we have this thing called gravity that keeps it all in place and 
somehow all these systems work perfectly and collided at this perfect point in time when the sun is burning at just the right temperature at just the right distance from us to make this a comfortable place to hang out. You know, if you've ever taken any psychedelics and looked up, you know, from a dark place up, up in the mountains at, at the Milky Way or up at the star-filled sky, you can't not see that. You can't not see the interconnectivity. The chances that there's got to be other life out there and that we're probably just little seeds of that and they're probably laughing at us, and you know, like a stupid little toddler banging around over here. You know, still fighting over our own resources on this little rock amongst ourselves, fighting amongst ourselves while we're, you know, <laughs> instead of working together. But anyway, so yeah, yeah, what a riot. The CIA unleashes, unleashes uh, LSD and creates the 60s inadvertently. ...who turned a lot of people on to LSD and helped guide them through trips. Sorry, she just he mentioned Timothy Leary. Because of Sidney Gottlieb, he wasn't part of one of the experiments, but what's the connection? You're absolutely right. Tim Leary, who became the great guru of LSD, first came across psychedelics through Sidney Gottlieb. Although, uh, like all these other people, he had never heard Gottlieb's name because Gottlieb lived in complete invisibility. So Tim Leary's interest in psychedelic drugs was sparked by an article that appeared in Life magazine in 1957. It was about a couple of Americans who had gone to Mexico and found the magic mushroom that produces hallucinations. Leary was fascinated by this. He later went to Mexico, and before he ever tried LSD, he was using those magic mushrooms. What he did not know and had no way of knowing is that that expedition to Mexico that produced the Life magazine article was paid for by Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA. It... <laughs> wow, so it just goes, the rabbit hole goes so deep, you know? So, anyway, I won't bore you with this whole program, but, uh, you know, if they have any other nuggets, I'll go ahead and throw those in here. It was a two-part process. First, you had to blast away the existing mind. Second... Okay, so I just missed it. A little part in the interview here, but uh, oh my god, so they're just talking about Whitey Bulger. Uh, so Whitey Bulger, the CIA gave him LSD every day for a year to try to make him schizophrenic, and they told him that they were treating him for schizophrenia. So finally he realizes, I'm not crazy, you're trying to make me crazy. And, uh, and I guess he's written about it since, but now they're talking about their approach. So first, you have, it's a two-step process. First, you have to destroy the mind, then you implant what you want to be there. Wow. You had to find a way to insert a new mind into that resulting void. Well, he didn't get too far on number two, but he did a lot of work on number one, trying to find out how to destroy the mind of a human being. And that was the purpose of experiments that he carried out in prisons in the United States and at secret detention centers in Europe and East Asia. And he worked with some pretty high-class torturers, too, from one of the Nazi doctors and the chief poisoner 
uh, from Japan during World War II. How did they end up in his program? One of the most remarkable uh, discoveries that I made in the research for this book is that the CIA mind control project, MKUltra, was essentially a continuation of work that began in Japanese and Nazi concentration camps. Not only was it roughly based on those experiments, but the CIA actually hired the vivisectionists and the torturers who had worked in Japan and in Nazi concentration camps to come and explain what they had found out. So, whoa, mind blow. There, go, there it goes to a whole nother level that I wasn't aware of again. So, wow. And for, for those of you that aren't aware, I think it's Operation Paperclip uh, that points out how the U.S. government helped 1,500 of the Nazi top scientists escape prosecution for war crimes, and they basically used those 1,500 people to create what we now know, as, uh, know of as NASA. So NASA was formed with Nazi scientists that were working on rocket propulsion. So here we, here we see a theme, right? So can we really be the good guys if we'll work with anybody and do anything to achieve a goal? Can you still be riding the white horse, wearing that white hat, if that's what you're doing? I don't know, man. I don't know. Let's continue to listen here. Found out so that we could build on their research. For example, Nazi doctors had conducted extensive uh, experiments with mescaline at the Dachau concentration camp. Uh, and the CIA was very interested in figuring out whether mescaline could be the key to mind control. That was one of their big avenues of investigation. So they hired the Nazi doctors who had uh, been involved in that project to advise them. Another thing the Nazis provided was uh, information about poison gases like sarin, which is still being used. Nazi doctors came to America, to Fort uh, Dietrich in uh, Maryland, which was the center of this project, to lecture to CIA officers to tell them how long it took for people to die from sarin. And So here we're talking about Fort Dietrich, Maryland again. So Fort Dietrich, Maryland seems to be the real epicenter of global terrorism. Let that sink in for a minute. How many things have we heard about about Fort Detrick? That's where the nine one the nine eleven anthrax came from. It's possibly where the corona flu came from. You know, they've been busted with you know, working with watching people die of sarin gas poisoning to study the... Oh, my God. All right, we're back with more on the CIA's secret quest for mind control, torture, LSD, and a poisoner-in-chief. Um, once again, this is uh, Fresh Air with Terry Gross and... She is interviewing, where did his book go? Well, I already announced it. Darn it, where did his book go? Huh, anyway. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. But we are going to continue listening. Where's the guy's name? I want to. I want to give a shout out because this is a very powerful interview. I'm gaining so much information that I did not learn that I that I did not uh, previously know. This is uh okay. So this in- interview is with Stephen Kinzer being interviewed by Terry Gross on Fresh Air, and he just wrote a book, uh, or I don't, I don't know about just wrote a book, but he wrote a book, because this is from September 9th, 2019. Uh, he wrote a book called The Poisoner-in-Chief. All right, let's continue. This is pretty fascinating. From Saren, and was there a difference in how long it took to die if you were a small child or an infant, whether you were an elderly person or whether you were a healthy middle-aged person? The only way to know this would be to have killed all those people. The CIA was eager to get this kind of information. And actually, one of the things that is the most bizarre about the fact that we relied on Nazi doctors is that Sidney Gottlieb himself was Jewish and his parents had emigrated from Central Europe in the early 20th century. If they had not emigrated, Sidney Gottlieb might well himself have been brought up in Central Europe, forced into a ghetto, brought to a concentration camp, and become the subject of one of these grotesque Nazi medical experiments. Nonetheless, he didn't seem to have any problem working as a CIA officer with the doctors who conducted those experiments. Wow. Yeah, I found that pretty hard to understand. but, you know, also, Kurt Blom, one of the Nazi doctors who was hired by Sidney Gottlieb, was on trial in Nuremberg. He was acquitted, but he was one of the Nazi doctors who was tried. And the Nuremberg Code established that if you are conducting experiments, that the person you are experimenting on needs to give informed consent. And, of course, MK Ultra totally violated the Nuremberg Code, but apparently the U.S. never signed on to that, never adapted that. If the United States had used the Nuremberg Code domestically, Sidney Gottlieb would never have been able to do what he did. There couldn't have been MKUltra. What Sidney Gottlieb did is exactly what we sentenced Nazi doctors to death after the Second World War for doing in concentration camps. It wasn't just a question of administering these super high doses of LSD for very extended periods of time. There was also like questioning and other kind of testing that went along with the administration of these high doses. Tell us about that. Gottlieb and the CIA established secret detention centers throughout Europe and East Asia, particularly in uh, Japan, Germany, and the Philippines, which were largely under American control in uh, the, the period of the early 50s and therefore Uh, Gottlieb didn't have to worry about any legal uh, entanglements. Uh, In these places, he carried out his most extreme experiments, some undoubtedly fatal. We don't know how many people died, but uh, a number did, and many lives were permanently destroyed. So what you found in these Europe experiments was a confluence of two interests, both uh, uh, that preoccupied the CIA. Number one was Gottlieb's desire to find the, t- the key to mind control, which the CIA considered its absolute greatest uh, project and most important priority. Second, CIA officers in Europe and Asia were capturing enemy agents 
and others who they felt might be suspected persons or were otherwise what they called expendable. They would grab these people and throw them into cells and then test all kinds of uh, not just drug potions, but other techniques like electroshock, extremes of temperature, sensory isolation, all the meantime bombarding them with questions trying to see if they could break down resistance and find a way to destroy the human ego. So these were uh, projects designed uh, not only to understand the human mind, but to figure out how to destroy it. And that made Gottlieb, although in some ways a very compassionate person, certainly the most prolific torturer of his generation. Wow. So, mind blow. So here our tax dollars are going for studies on how to destroy the human mind. And he's talking about the worst offenses being abroad. But they did this right here in the United States. Some of these tests on LSD, I watched a, a movie about MKUltra. And maybe I'll do a whole episode on MKUltra sometime. But uh, I saw a movie on MK, a documentary on MKUltra. And they were testing LSD on unknowing people in San Francisco. They would pay uh, prostitutes... They would set up a bunch of hidden cameras in a, in a hotel room, pay a prostitute extra money, you know, to go along with the whole thing and let it be filmed and be part of it. And then the prostitute would slip, would, you know, slip an unknowing customer, a John, LSD, either by kissing them or I don't know how else, I guess probably kissing them or something and putting or whatever, putting it in their drink, who knows. But that was a thing, too. So, unbelievable. So, we've done this to our own citizens. And then you've heard of the Tuskegee experiments, where I'm not sure if they gave these soldiers syphilis, or if they just did, found soldiers with syphilis. The Tuskegee Airmen, a bunch of uh, black pilots from World War II, I think, right around that era, that had syphilis, and they didn't give them treatment. They just watched them for years, 30 years. Watched them die to see, so they could see how syphilis progressed. And, you know, and the, our government's done the same thing with, with nuclear experiments on people. Unbelievable. So, let's continue with this. And were there any guidelines in effect in the U.S. that would have made it illegal had people known what he was doing. This is one of the most remarkable aspects of the Gottlieb story. He operated almost completely without supervision. He had a, sort of a checkoff from his uh, titular boss and from his real boss, Richard Helms, and from the CIA director, Alan Dulles, but none of them really wanted to know what he was doing. This guy had a license to kill. He was allowed to requisition human subjects across the United States and around the world and subject them to any kind of abuse that he wanted, even up to the level of it being fatal. Yet nobody looked over his shoulder. He never had to file serious reports to anybody. I think the mentality must have been, this project is so important. Mind control, if it can be mastered, is the key to global world power that 
the idea of it disturbing a few lives or losing even a few hundred lives could not be seen as important enough to outweigh that imperative. Only when you get caught up in a cause like that that allows you to put aside conscience uh, and all other moral considerations and even serious scientific considerations can you allow yourself to get caught up in a situation like this where one person is allowed on his own whim to go out and torture and kill people and the people who might be supervising him really don't want to hear about it for reasons that have to do with the old CIA code, which is the code of all secret services. The less you know, the better. You're not implicated. As a result of this, Gottlieb was allowed to work for 10 years uh, without anybody supervising him or even really being aware or wanting to be aware of what he was doing. So before um, Sidney Gottlieb started wow. experimenting with LSD, he ran CIA experiments with marijuana, cocaine, heroin, mescaline. I guess those didn't work as mind control drugs. He was trying everything. He not only used the drugs that you mentioned, but extreme forms of uh, stimulants and sedatives. One of the techniques they tested in Europe was to sedate a person to the coma state and then feed him extreme doses of stimulants. Uh, and then when the person was in the transition phase between comatose and hyperactive, they would electroshock him with very high doses, hoping that maybe this combination would be the thing that could blow away a person's mind. So uh, the CIA and Gottlieb in particular were limited only by their own imagination. Gottlieb's imagination ran wild. He himself used LSD by his own estimate about at least 200 times, so his imagination was very fertile. And under the conditions of his employment, he was allowed to pursue any form of experimentation that he could imagine. Wow, so we'll leave that interview right there. But my God, so here we've got our own Nazi experimenter here in the United States. <clears throat> so, you know, if you ever thought, we'll, you know, we don't do that, you know, that we only do horrible stuff in reaction to those horrible people over there, you know, maybe you think we would never do it you know, on our own soil, that's another one, right? Well, to people who believe that one, we would never do it on our own soil or to our own people. Let's check out this article. So this is by Discover Magazine. Um, let's see, by Rebecca Creston, Written on uh, July 28th, 2015 at 12.10 p.m. Thank you for the accuracy there, uh, Rebecca. So, <clears throat> this goes, this article is titled, Blood and Fog, the Military's Germ Warfare Test in San Francisco. Yes, you heard me correctly. The Nuremberg Code was drafted in 1947 following the appalling revelations of human experimentation committed in Nazi concentration camps. The overarching goal of the code was to establish a set of rules for ethical conduct of research using human subjects, guaranteeing that the rights and welfare of such participants would be protected. Two important 
principal principles guide and define this code, the concept of voluntary informed consent and that no experiment shall be conducted in which there is a is a priori reason to believe that death or disability, disabling injury, will occur. Okay, so it's got to be voluntary informed consent and you have to have reason to believe that death or disabling injury will not occur. Just four short years later, the government of the United States would violate the code as it undertook one of the largest human experiments in history, spraying the city of San Francisco with a microbe, Seratia marcensis, in a simulated germ warfare attack. The genus Seratia are a group of soil and water-dwelling microbes that one <clears throat> with one very nasty party trick, the manufacturer of a red pigment known as protegezoin, or something like that, derived from the Latin protegesusus for its marvelous and seemingly supernatural coloring. The color ranges from a lurid vermilion to a washed-out pink, depending on the microbe's age. The, this unique property has been regularly exploited in microbiology as a biological marker tracking metabolic behavior and transmission of bacteria in various environments. For this reason, the microbe is an ideal tool for such work, a showy microbe that naturally flies a very noticeable red flag. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. I first heard about this back in about 2005. Um, my partner at the time was a big research fanatic. And we were living in Sausalito, California on a houseboat. It was pretty cool. But we, there was this weird pink ring around the bathtub. Like soap scum, but pink. And in the sink, too. And I'd never seen anything like it. So she was a research fanatic, and I can actually credit her with... Uh, kind of planting the seed or the bug in me. And she found out that that's what it was. It was serratia. So this was sprayed on the San Francisco Bay sometime in the 50s, all the, the entire San Francisco Bay area. So in southern Marin County, in 2003, 2004, we're still getting this in our water supply still seeing these pink rings in the sink and in the bathtub. So, pretty freaking amazing. Okay, so let's see. The bug also has a fondness for starchy foods, and it was recognized as early as the 6th century BCE when philosopher... Blah, 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 blah. Same habit of people. So, they go on and on. Let's see, so over a period of six days in September 1950, members of the U.S. Navy sprayed clouds of serratia from giant hoses aboard a Navy minesweeper drifting two miles along the San Francisco coastline. A bacterial fog quickly enveloped and disguised the region's own mist. By monitoring the air at 43 scattered sites throughout the region, the Navy found serratia bacteria blown throughout San Francisco and extending to the adjacent communities of Albany, Berkeley, 
Daly City, Colma, Oakland, San Leandro, and Sausalito. There we go, Sausalito. In this regard, the experiment was a success. The San Francisco Bay was identified as a highly susceptible site for germ warfare attack and a quarantine range, quarantinable range for the airborne dispersal of microbes was, was established. A 1951 military report on the experiment summarized the findings. It was noted that the successful BW, Biological Warfare Attack, on this area can be launched from the sea and that the effective dosage can be produced over relatively large areas. So, huh, to see how it works out, they just test the people. There you go. It was estimated that the city's 800,000 residents had each received a heavy dose of serratia, inhaling millions of bacteria throughout the testing period. In its report, the military further concluded that serratia marcensins is so rarely a cause of illness and that and the illness resulting is predominantly so trivial that its use as a simulant should be continued even over populated areas. Wow. However, serratia can cause illness and the repercussions of this experiment extended far beyond a slightly foggier week for San Franciscans. A week after the spraying, 11 patients were admitted at the now-defunct Stanford University Hospital in San Francisco with severe urinary tract infections. Resistant to the limited antibiotics available at in that era, one gentleman recovering from prostate surgery developed complications of heart infection as serratia colonized his heart valves. His would be the only death during the aftermath of the experiment. Stanford University Hospital doctors culturing the patient's urine on petri dishes found an unusual and unsuspected discovery. Microbes blushing with a cherry red pigment. Infection with serratia was so rare that the outbreak was extensively investigated by the university to identify the origins of this scarlet letter bug. Through the source of this unusual organism could not be located despite an exhaustive epidemiological search, Stanford published a report on the outbreak noting that the isolation of a red pigment producing bacterium from the urine of human beings was of interest. At first, as a curious clinical observation, later the repeated occurrence of urinary tract infections by this organism with bacterium abitment in two patients and death in one wow. indicated the potential clinical importance of this group of bacteria. It was the first recorded outbreak of serratia in the history of microbiology. Wow. This would not be the last time that such quote-unquote simulation experiments would be carried out on American citizens. From 1950 to 1966, the military performed open-air testing of potential terrorist weapons at least 239 times in at least eight American cities, including New York, Key West, Panama City, Florida exposing unknown numbers of citizens to serratia and other microbial organisms. <clears throat> In the majority of those cases, exposure 
to the microbe was nothing more than catastrophic then exposure to other microbes was no more catastrophic than exposure to other microbes in a, in a dust cloud for a minority including the elderly young and children and uh, immune blah, 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 and immune uncompromised such exposure posed serious health risks Following President Nixon's 1969 order unequivocally ending both offensive germ warfare research activity and the stockpile of biological agents, the military ceased all simulation tests on the American public. But it, but it is this one event, the serratious spray of San Francisco, that stands out among many covert experiments on uninformed American citizens committed by the U.S. government largely due to the scale and scope of the operation, as well as the diligence of Stanford Hospital in identifying the homegrown outbreak and publishing their findings. It is one of the largest offenses of the Nuremberg Code since its inception, a deplorable betrayal of public health, safety, of informed consent, and civil liberties. Boom. And then she, uh, so it was Operation Sea Spray. There you go. And she lists all her, all her references right there. So I'll put the notes to this, I'll put a link to this article in the comments, uh, about this episode as usual. So you guys can, uh, can learn more should you care to but uh so let's just go back to does your government care about you no you're you're we're cattle we're taxpaying cattle you know um and i could do a whole nother video on or a podcast on this documentary beyond treason but you know what i'll just go ahead and pull up a clip i'm going to uh yeah, it's that important. Because would your, would your government lie to you? Would your government test mysterious stuff on you? Well, we just heard that they do it on prisoners, right? Well, in this other documentary, Beyond Treason, it's about the Gulf War Syndrome. And turns out we test all kinds of stuff on our own soldiers, too. So you can sign up to be a patriot, Defend your country, willing to put your life on the line, and they don't give a shit. They'll still test stuff on you that can make you crazy or kill you. So, let me find that clip. I'll be right back. Alright, so here we're back with a clip from the documentary Beyond Treason from 2005. It is a small and helpless neighbor. Just a short time ago, you heard the president announce that coalition forces of Operation Desert Storm have begun a large-scale ground operation against Iraqi forces inside Kuwait. This phase of the combined air, land, and sea campaign has been carefully planned to force Iraq out of Kuwait with the minimum number of casualties to Allied forces. Indeed. Analysis and computer modeling indicate that chemical agents released by aerial bombing did not reach U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia. However, we have identified potential fallout concerns in southern Iraq, 
particularly at the rear area chemical weapons storage bunker and pit area at the location known as Al Kamashia. So what she just mentioned there, this is just the intro here, what she mentioned there was that what sounded like we were going to be using chemical uh, weapons from the air and that that wasn't a problem, but what did pose a problem was these chemical weapons dumps. So, turns out, we blew up chemical weapons dumps or depots right where they were storing chemical weapons and there's even footage in this documentary of a from a US soldier's helmet cam he's going into the bunker and it's full of chemical and biological weapons and it shows all the countries they come from the UK United States Australia so there's the evidence right because back in the in the 80s when Iran was fighting Iraq we gave both sides a bunch of weapons, and we gave Iraq, probably both sides, chemical and biological weapons to use against the other. You know, that whole thing of arm both sides, let your enemies fight, arm both sides, then you have, you know, because you're, you're reducing their numbers on both sides, so ultimately you win either way. Doesn't matter who wins their war, right? Brutal tactics. It's like... New World Order tactics, right? Incite warfare and benefit off the, off the outcome. Um, so anyway, what she's talking about there is these weapons depots. And apparently this is where the Gulf War Syndrome came from. We blew up these weapon depots because we had to eliminate the, the evidence, you know, the crates of chemical weapons that said United States on them. But, and she even says it right there, that this could pose a problem according to the mapping that they've done, the modeling that they've done. They think it's, oh, there's going to be fallout that will affect our soldiers, right? They say it can be used from the air, no problem, but ooh, what poses a problem are these weapons depots. Huh. They went ahead and blew them up anyway without moving our troops out of the way. So either they just don't give a fuck or they wanted to test, you know, conduct some experiments. And we've already heard that the government has used people as guinea pigs many times. So I'll find another couple pertinent clips in this and, and share them with you. Wow. Okay, this is going to be heavy. This is going to be a long segment. Um... So the first clip here is called Atomic Veterans. And these are veterans that were unsuspect, or you know, that, that were tested, basically, the effects of radiation, most of whom are, are dead now. But, you know, the effects were always played down, you know. And you're going to be a hero. You're going to help us gain more knowledge. All this shit. Wow. Bob away. They're showing a bunch of soldiers sitting at a test site, watching a blast with no protective gear. Atomic veterans include members of the United States Armed Forces who were exposed to ionizing radiation from atomic and nuclear weapons testing during the period beginning with the Trinity Blast of July 16, 1945 at Alamogordo, New Mexico. The U.S. cleanup of Nagasaki, Hiroshima, 
the 235 atmospheric and nuclear weapons test in the Pacific and Nevada test sites ending with the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty of 1963. The National Association of Atomic Veterans recognizes that civilians, as well as military personnel, were exposed to harmful nuclear material radiation and that many of these personnel have since died as a result of radiation-induced illnesses. Over 382,000 servicemen, as well as civilian personnel, took part in a variety of tests during the Cold War period. When the Atomic Energy Commission, working in conjunction with the Department of Defense, had troops participate in and witness the detonation at various Pacific and Nevada test areas. Most detonations were larger than and emitted considerably more deadly radiation than the two weapons which were employed against Japan at the end of World War II. During the test, Various government agencies and departments were interested in learning about the various effects of atomic and nuclear weapons, as well as how these weapons affected the immediate performance of military personnel and equipment. Troops, ships, and various types of equipment were placed from several hundred yards to several miles from the center of each detonation. On many occasions, Military personnel perform maneuvers in and around ground zeroes without any protective clothing or respiratory devices. Since the end of these tests in 1963, there has been no government-sponsored medical surveillance of test participants, nor any effort to locate these individuals to warn them of potential health threats. No, of course not. Thanks for your service. Support our troops. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Some rich asshole sitting behind a desk sends a working kid, working family's kid off to die in a war for corporate profit. Yet some people are still convinced. Support our troops. You know. Wow. Let me find another clip here. Okay, she goes on to talk about MKUltra. Here we go with more MKUltra. Project MKUltra was the codename for the CIA Mind Control Research Program lasting from the 1950s to the 1970s. In 1964, the project was renamed MKSearch. MKUltra was started on the order of CIA Director Alan Dulles in April of 1953, largely in response to alleged Soviet, Chinese, and North Korean mind control techniques on U.S. prisoners of war in Korea. Because most of the MKUltra records were deliberately destroyed in 1972 by order of then-Director Richard Helms, it is impossible to have a complete understanding of the more than 160 individually funded research projects sponsored by MKUltra and the related CIA programs. Exper wow, 160 different programs. So Gottlieb and his LSD experiments and whatever the hell he was doing, Gottlieb was one of, one of them. Well, they didn't say 160 different people, 160 different experiments. So who knows, maybe Gottlieb was running a bunch of them. 
So I guess that's electric shock, LSD, all those other drugs they tried. Oh my god. The comb different combinations. 160 different techniques tried. Wow. Experiments included radiation, LSD. Experiments included dosing CIA employees, military personnel, other government agents, prostitutes, mental patients, and members of the general public with LSD to study their reactions, usually without the subject's knowledge. In the summer of 1975, congressional hearings and the Rockefeller Commission report revealed to the public for the first time that the CIA and the DOD had conducted experiments on both consenting and unwitting human subjects as part of an extensive program to influence and control human behavior through the use of psychoactive drugs, such as LSD, mescaline, and other chemical, biological, and psychological means. The report states that no official records were kept regarding the deaths or illnesses of experimentees. So, they don't care about you! They don't care about you! Here's another one. Yeah, they don't even keep records. Well, I'm sure they did keep the records, but, you know, they were probably burned or they're in a, you know, very safe place. Here's another one uh, I'm not even aware of called Project White Coat. A U.S. Army project that ended over 25 years ago is now the subject of much scrutiny. Project White Coat was the Army's code name for a series of germ warfare studies conducted on about 2,300 Seventh-day Adventist servicemen from 1954 under strict secrecy, the U.S. Army established Camp Dietrich outside of Frederick, Maryland during World War II for the sole purpose of developing germ weapons. The program was controlled by the Army's Chemical Warfare Service, a branch that had worked with gas weapons that were used by the U.S. in World War I. The Army began to study both the offensive and defensive aspects of biowarfare. So, there it is again, Fort Detrick, Maryland, this evil place keeps This evil place, Fort Detrick, Maryland, just keeps coming up, keeps showing its ugly head. You know, unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, are we really supposed to believe that they're working on vaccines and cures? at Fort Detrick, Maryland, or were before they were shut down by the CDC for possibly for not being able to contain the pathogens that they're working with? Are you freaking kidding me? And the pathogens that they're working with are swine, a number of swine flu viruses, a number of different corona uh, viruses, Ebola, 
smallpox, anthrax, and the Great Plague from the Middle Ages. I don't know how the hell they got a sample of that, but they have that too. And the CDC shut them down because they weren't confident that they would be able to contain these things. Which is what I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast in that article from August of 2019. So between August of 2019 and now, the United States has become the epicenter of the coronavirus. And we're supposed to believe it started in some little small town in Wuhan, China. But in reality, our government was working with it at a weapons lab in Fort Detrick, Maryland. And now New York has the high is the basically the epicenter, the world epicenter. It's all too convenient. In 1952, the Army Medical Corps stationed a medical unit in Fort Detrick. And in 1954, this unit began using Seventh-day Adventist soldiers in its research, presumably in the defensive aspects of germ warfare. Fort Dietrich was home to what became known as Project White Coat, the code name for the group of Seventh-day Adventist soldiers who were used as human guinea pigs in biowarfare research. So there it is again, testing on our own. So, so there it is again, testing on our own soldiers. On people that signed up voluntarily to join. My God. Unreal. And then here we go with a piece about Agent, Agent Orange, which was used in Vietnam. Vietnam still has horrible deformities and, and, and you know, and, and oh my God, it's so sad. And uh, the hell, Cambodia, their number one industry is still the manufacture of prosthetic limbs because of our chemical poisoning of the entire area. Orange was the code name for an herbicide developed for the military primarily for use in tropical climates. The purpose of the product was to deny an enemy cover and concealment in dense terrain by defoliating trees and shrubbery where the enemy could hide. The product Agent Orange was a code name for the orange band that was used to mark the drums in which it was stored. The product was tested in Vietnam in the early 1960s and used at the height of the war in 1967 and 1968. Agent Orange was a 50-50 mix of two chemicals known conventionally as 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T. The combined product was mixed with kerosene or diesel fuel and dispersed by aircraft, vehicle, and hand spraying. An estimated 19 million gallons of Agent Orange was used in South Vietnam during the war, potentially affecting 2.5 million Vietnam veterans. On May 5, 1990, Admiral E.R. Zumwalt, Jr., in a classified report, submitted the following. Report to the Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs on the association between adverse health effects and exposure to Agent Orange. 
In that report, he concluded that it was at least as likely as not that the exposure to Agent Orange caused numerous life-threatening, debilitating, and deforming diseases. Wow, she's showing uh, pictures of the diseases as she's saying this, pictures of these classified documents, lymphoma, Hodgkin's, bone disease. Oh my God. Bone cancer, excuse me. Now here she is talking about something I've never heard, BZ, an aerosolized, well I guess I have because I've seen this documentary before, but I forgot, an aerosolized hallucinogenic. Wow. BZ is the Army's designation of the psychedelic chemical known in military circles as Agent Buzz, or by the Army's chemical code designation of EA-2277. BZ was aerosolized, sprayed from aircraft, and utilized in conventional bombs. The effect of BZ was that it was psychotropic in nature. Over 362 human subjects were experimented upon at Dugway Proving Ground in Utah in 1964 under the code name of Project Dork. Most records of military experiments involving BZ are still classified and unable to be obtained even through the Freedom of Information Act. BZ was an incapacitating agent with paranormal hallucinations that lasted for not just days, but for weeks and months. You may have seen the movie Jacob's Ladder, which depicts effects from the mist sprayed over our military by our Department of Defense. Oh my God, wow! Weeks of hallucination, oh, that would be harrowing. Oh my God, can you imagine? Oh, and especially like if you didn't take a substance, so it's just coming out of nowhere, you're losing your mind for like, and you don't even know why? Whoa! Wow! And for you, for those of you that haven't seen that movie, Jacob's Ladder, wow, that is a must-see. I highly recommend it. It is a trip, though. It'll take you like, I didn't hear anybody explain to me what it was about. So it took me watching it two or three times before I even had the kind of the gist of what it was about. Wow, so it's actually about Project Dork, where our military sprayed BZ on soldiers. Wow. That's pretty heavy, man. Just And it goes on and on and on, right? Now we get into the Gulf Wars. To this day, the Department of Defense continues to deny and stonewall the existence of a Gulf War illness. The Gulf War illness is a cumulative effect of exposure to depleted uranium, chemicals, biologicals, vaccines, petrochemical agents, and parasite diseases such as leishmaniasis. Few people are aware that the Gulf War was yet another example of the Department of Defense's intentional exposure of its own troops to its own deadly weapons. From 1984 through 1989, the U.S. government, with full knowledge of the CDC and the Department of Commerce, sold and transferred to Iraq four 
billion dollars worth of deadly chemical agents. Deadly biological agents such as anthrax, Clostridium botulinum, and West Nile fever virus. As a result of the first Gulf War, hundreds of thousands of our military are now sick and many have died. The official figure of those who served in Operation Desert Shield and Storm is 697,000. The Department of Defense has now declared nearly 250,000 of those troops as permanently disabled. Wow, let that sink in. Wow, so 250,000 troops disabled in the Gulf War. But support our troops! Derp, derp! Out of 650,000, 250,000 disabled? In what we were told was a cakewalk of a war? Not disabled with limbs blown off. Disabled because of Gulf War Syndrome. That our government denied the, even the existence of. Wow! The official position of the Department of Defense is that there are no classified or unclassified documents that exist to prove that chemicals and biologicals were used in the first Gulf War. But in only a 100-hour war, when less than 150 troops died, how do we explain the morbidity and mortality rate of nearly 450,000 of our servicemen and women? Wow, so check those numbers. There it is. Only 150 of our troops died. I don't know why they'd call them troops. Soldiers. It's not a troop. You're not a troop. You're a soldier. You're an individual person. Over 150, only 150 soldiers died, but 450,000 soldiers became either, either died or became permanently disabled afterwards? Wow. Wow. So At the time that the Gulf War started, I was the uh, nuclear medical sciences officer, uh, intelligence and comfort and everything, special operations officer mobilization officer, training officer for the 330th Medical Brigade. Lieutenant Doug Roke. Brigade in the U.S. Army. Uh, it's an Army Reserve Medical Command uh, under a one-star general. Dr. Doug Rocky is a U.S. Army health physicist and nuclear medical sciences officer. Dr. Rocky has expertise in nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare operations, microwave radiation, emergency response, decontamination and battlefield cleanup. We were the super garbage men. We had to clean up the messes. We had to identify the messes. We had to collect all the garbage. We had to provide the on-site medical care. It's a lot. All the Iraqi equipment, a lot of U.S. equipment, contains radiological components. When those that equipment was blowing up, the radiological materials were released into the environment exposing and contaminating. And then to top it all off, we use uranium munitions, known as depleted uranium. They've been used back in 1973 by the Israelis against the uh, Egyptians, 
but during Gulf War One, Desert Shield and Desert Storm, we took it to a totally new level. The use of radioactive materials on the battlefield, deliberately taking tons and tons, actually over 350 tons of solid radioactive materials, and dispersed it across Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq. Taking our radioactive waste and throw it in somebody else's backyard. Wow, so let that sink in for a minute, right? Taking our radioactive waste incorporating it in, incorporating it into a bomb depleted uranium munitions right bunker busters and other and the likes so you know Iraq has now taken over with uh, as far as deformities go Iraq has taken over for Vietnam era because uh, of all the radiation births it's harrowing you can you can check it on YouTube like there's all these kids being born like oh it's so freaking sad so freaking sad I am considered a disabled veteran I've got a 40% disability from the United States Department of Veteran Affairs for combat injuries caused by depleted uranium and other exposures So even the doctor got exposed. Nobody's immune. All right, here we got some more crazy information about uh, nuclear studies. And they're going to interview an author here. Loren Murray is an independent scientist who specializes in radiation issues. Her degrees include BS in geology, master's degree in Near Eastern Studies, and has pursued doctoral studies in geosciences at the University of California, Davis. For the past five years, my research has focused on the damaging effects of low-level radiation. The history of depleted uranium goes back to a 1943 declassified memo known as the Groves Memorandum. The Grove Memorandum, huh? I wonder if this memorandum was finalized at the Bohemian Grove. I bet it was. That's where the plans for the uh, atom bomb were finalized. In this memo, depleted uranium is recommended for development as a poison gas warfare weapon. According to the United Nations Human Rights Commission, which has declared depleted uranium illegal, approximately 17 countries have purchased depleted uranium weaponry from the United States government. In December. Wow. Mind blow. Mind blow. Once again, these are clips from the movie, uh, the documentary Beyond Treason, 2005, on YouTube. So <clears throat> here we are not only using DP depleted or DU uh, weaponry depleted uranium, 
but we're also selling it to 17 different countries. Unfreaking believable. Here's the doctor again with uh, some more breakdown. In December of 1992, the director of the United States Army and Environmental Policy Institute was ordered to figure out ways to reduce the toxicity of uranium munitions by Assistant Secretary of the Army Walker. In 1995, the director of AEPI told the Secretary of the Army, we can't reduce the toxicity. It's not possible. The United States Army Common Task Train states very specifically uranium contamination will make food and water unusable. Hmm. And yet we use it in combat all over the place. That's why the United Nations Subcommission on Human Rights had ruled that uranium munitions were an illegal weapon because they're indiscriminate. They can't be cleaned up and they last for eternity. Boom! And they last for eternity. So, we've bombed Iraq back to the Stone Age. They're fucked. Fucked! They're totally fucked. And all the other places we're bombing, Somalia, Yemen, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia is doing our dirty work for us there, right? In Yemen, but they're using U.S. weapons. Wow, man, this is harrowing. Let's hear this again and let it sink in. That's why the United Nations Subcommission on Human Rights had ruled that uranium munitions were an illegal weapon. Because they're indiscriminate. They can't be cleaned up. And they last for eternity. They can't be cleaned up. And they last for eternity. The amount of depleted uranium used in the first Gulf War in 1991 is approximately 340 tons, and this was admitted by the U.S. government. In Yugoslavia, Lord Robertson, who was the head of NATO in 1998, admitted in the public media that the United States had used depleted uranium warheads in every missile used in that invasion. It's estimated that at least a thousand tons of depleted uranium was used in Afghanistan in 2001 and approximately 2,400 tons were used in Iraq in 2003. The United Nations Subcommission on Human Rights, because of the fact that uranium, uranium contamination makes food and water unusable, has a permanent effect and can't be cleaned up and affects not only combatants but non-combatants. It's been ruled an illegal weapon. It was years ago. But we use it, but we use it. You know what this reminds me of? Anybody watching, if you haven't seen the original Planet of the Apes movies, you need to check those out. Oh my God. The new ones are great. The new ones are great. Don't get me wrong. I love them. But the first ones, Wow. Because there's something about the forbidden land so that ties into what we're talking about. Whoo! Man, this is powerful stuff. I'm going to find another clip. So, and let's just remember who the president was <clears throat> during that first Iraq war. 
Gulf, Desert Storm, whatever the frick they want to call it. Stupid acronym. But yeah, no, that was George Bush Sr. Yeah. The, you know, the nice guy that everybody wants to look back on and be like, oh, he was a decent man. Oh, Ellen DeGeneres was hanging out like with George, with his son. Like, oh, no, F those people. That's the, the New World Order. He was that one of the heads of the New World Order. One of the worst of the one percenters. Oh, my God. Here we continue. We all know that the United States falsely accused Iraq of possessing weapons of mass destruction in 2003. In fact, the United States invaded Iraq and used weapons of mass destruction against the Iraqis. Depleted uranium has a half-life of four and a half billion years. If we had a pound of depleted uranium now, in four and a half billion years, there would only be half a pound left. This means that the Middle East and Central Asia and Yugoslavia are contaminated forever. Can you say New World Army? New World Order, rather? We're first platoon Charlie Company. Right. And we are part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. On the battlefield, you've got to have an officer who can think on his feet. We had that. Lieutenant Walker came to us from ROTC. It didn't matter if we were in training or in combat. He was right there with us. He had confidence and dedication. And wherever he goes, it's a clip from an army commercial. I'm a military brat. Uh, my father spent uh, 23, 24 years in the, in the army. Staff Sergeant Bob Jones is a veteran of Desert Storm, a former army ranger now retired and disabled due to Gulf War illness. Not only is Bob ill, but his entire immediate family is affected as they all suffer from mycoplasma fermentins incognitus. During the air campaign, uh, we targeted their chemical, biological, and nuclear facilities. So we were exposed to chemicals, biologicals, nuclear radiation from, in the form of uh, depleted uranium and also direct uh, enriched uranium or EU from those nuclear facilities that were uh, bombed and targeted. And uh, many of the uh, coalition, especially uh, the guys on the front line, uh, such as uh, my unit and others like us, uh, were in the area of exposure from the fallouts of, of the coalition bombings. And although this information became widely known um, as early as 1994, uh, through testimony and uh, release of GAO reports that showed that 
the uh, meteorological data supported the fact that the uh, downwind plume or fallout from, from the bombings drifted over a large number of the troops that were forward positioned. The U.S. military personnel during Gulf War I, just like during the Balkans and in Gulf War II now, were not adequately protected from all of the exposures they had. We know from first-hand experience that the M40C series mass, as confirmed by the United States General Accounting Office, is defective. We know that it leaks when you move your head. We know that they, none of those, either the M17 series or the M40 series, provides protection against toxic industrial chemicals. Now, were they adequately protected? Absolutely not. Was my team adequately protected? Absolutely not. We wore the respirators, and we got sick. Now, what happened? What we confirmed and what we saw during Gulf War One, and when I was did the research as director of the depleted uranium project. That DU round comes down and it breaks up. We have the spall and then we have the fire. And we create uranium oxides of different types. Some in the ball game the size of cigarette ash and marbles on down to 0.1 micron. This has always been known. When I talk to senior Manhattan Project scientists that were expert particle physicists, they said, hey, we knew uranium on when it breaks up like this was going to be down in the 0 0.1, 0 0.2 micron range. No doubt about it. The gas mass, the respiratory protection issued to the troops, there's no way it can protect against inhalation. Well, that's what happened to myself and my team. We wore the respiratory protection during Gulf War One, inhaled it, and got sick. We wore the respiratory protection when we were doing the depleted uranium project research in Nevada test site. U.S. Department of Energy approved respirators. And we could smell and taste the uranium through the filter. Oh, that's brutal. They're even testing on the doctor that they put in charge of of testing and cleanup. Oh, my God. They could test it. They could taste it through the respirator. Wow. Wow, that is heavy. During our time over there, we started seeing uh, individuals become ill with uh, various symptoms uh, ranging from uh, rashes all over their bodies or certain areas of their bodies to having uh, chronic explosive diarrhea, which in some cases was heavy bleeding accompanied with that. Uh, we had, uh, and I can speak for myself on this as well, uh, excruciating headaches. Um, the bones and the joints started aching and there were night sweats and, uh, you know, 
things only became worse as time progressed. And um, my unit in particular was deactivated after our return back to Germany in May of 1991. Some of the other uh, individuals started showing up with uh, other diseases, uh, which included uh, several types of cancers and uh, and the, uh, the neurological problems that many of us suffer from and uh, degenerative joint bone disease, spine disease um, and other manifestations of illnesses that were at that time still unexplained that caused them to uh, no longer be able to perform their duties as a soldier as they had for so many years. And uh, some of us that uh, conceived children after the war, and I know of uh, at least two individuals where uh, their children were born perfectly healthy according to the hospital, and within six months after their return, uh, their hearts literally exploded in their chests. Hmm. Thought. Oh my God, this part is too is too sad to watch. But uh, and I think I'll leave it right here. You can. Um, you can pick it up and watch. I highly do, highly do recommend it. Um, oh, this is brutal. They're saying in Iraq, when a man and woman are having a child, they no longer ask if it's a boy or a girl. They ask if it's normal because the deformity rate is so high. Oh, oh brutal. Anyway, oh man, we'll leave it right there. Thanks for tuning in. This isn't uh, not a very uplifting topic, but very important. So, thank you for listening. This has been Dave with another episode of And Another Thing with Dave. Please feel free to leave comments. I'm recording this on Anchor, Anchor FM, so if you're watching it there, you can leave comments. You can actually leave up to a one-minute uh, audio comment that I can include in the podcast. Uh, and if you're listening somewhere else, thanks for tuning in. If you dig what I'm doing, please share with friends. Peace out, and keep seeking the truth.